Has anybody ever been sleep deprived in the room? Anybody been sleep deprived? If you've had a, a child recently, you've probably been sleep deprived recently. Uh, and uh, there's, there's nothing worse than being sleep deprived. Uh, maybe you were in the military. Maybe you got kept up for days on end to break you down psychologically. I don't know why they do that, but apparently there's a purpose. Uh, they make you sleep deprived to break you down to nothing. And kids kind of do the same thing to you when you first have them. Or maybe, maybe you've worked nights and you've transitioned from nights to days. And that whole what time of day even is it? Sleep deprivation. Uh, I can remember some of those first days we lived in the, the breakthrough house now. But uh, it was just the parsonage back then. And we brought Hudson home. And I remember some of those first nights of thinking... I am never going to sleep again. <laughs> how, how do I function? Because after about a little bit, I had to go back to work. And I'm not sleeping at night. And then I'm trying to function during the day. And listen, if you don't sleep, we become monsters. We are not humans. You become a monster if you do not sleep. Amen? Yes? Anybody tell a testimony for your spouse this morning if they don't sleep? We become monsters, right? And these little bitty things <laughs> become big things. And we get angry at people that we really shouldn't be angry at. And we do all kinds of things when we are sleep deprived that we would never do in real life, right? Now, this rhythm in our lives is God built. God made us this way that we need to be awake but we also need rest. Our bodies cannot function. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Why did God do that? Why did God make us like that? Now, God does all things with a purpose. And so the point of God making our bodies like that was to teach us that we need rest. We need to go to sleep at night. You don't need to stay up till 2 a.m. watching YouTube, okay, kids, adults? <laughs> uh, you need rest. You also need a day off every week, right? You need to tone it down, not answer as many phone calls, disconnect, right? And it's not just for our physical sense. God did this to point us to a spiritual reality that we are so at work all the time trying to prove our worth to God. And what we really need is what? We need rest. We need rest from trying to prove ourselves, rest from trying to earn our way to God. And this is why in the Old Testament, God puts in place something called the Sabbath. God forced his people one day a week, it was Saturday for them, to rest, to stop, to cease, to quit. And it was meant to be a blessing to them. It was meant to be this beautiful gift that was a part of their life. That every day, every week, we get to stop on Saturday. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to go there. We don't have to do kids' birthday parties. I'm sorry. We don't have to uh, play softball. I mean, sorry, that's too close to us. Uh, we don't have to work. We don't have to do anything. We can just stay at home. And it was meant to be this wonderful gift. If you've not been with us in Luke, uh, we've been tracking through since the beginning. And Jesus has, has started 
his ministry, and he's doing all kinds of wonderful things. He's healing, he's, he's casting out demons, he's proclaiming the truth of, of who he is as the Son of God, and he's proving it over and over. And this has caused quite the stir. There's, there's a large crowd following him. Uh, and really for the first year, year and a half, things are going really well, right? People like him. They're, they're intrigued by him. They want to be around him. Uh, but eventually what happens is the religious leaders start to turn. They begin to see Jesus as a threat to their position, to their power, to their, 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 their position in their society of being the top dogs. And they see all these people following Jesus and they see Jesus begin to teach against them. They see Jesus begin to call out their religiousness and not their godness, right? He, he's calling out their, their ways that they're, they're putting burdens on the people and they're, all this stuff. And last week we saw this play out in regards to fasting. That they had all these practices of when they fasted and if you didn't do it their way, then you weren't godly. And this week we're going to see it with the Sabbath, one of their most cherished religious experiences. So let's read it in Luke chapter 6, 1 through 11. It says, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those with him. And he said to him, the son of man, he's talking about himself, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. And on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered, like not working, par paralyzed. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they, the religious leaders, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for um, Jesus, mostly. I thank you for um, the purity of heart, the desire uh, within Jesus to bring us back into relationship and to do whatever that took. God, to give us rest, because uh, that's ultimately what the Sabbath points us to, is that we need to rest from our working because Jesus has done the work for us. And so I pray this morning as we read about those who are religious, God, we would not be like them. God, we would be filled with compassion and mercy and love not religiosity and tradition and practices, God. God, may we be more and more like Jesus because of reading and studying your word. So we love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so both of these stories happen on a Sabbath, and that's why we're going to talk about them together. 
Uh, but this first story, it tells us that, that on this Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples are walking through some grain fields. Now, this observing the Sabbath was, you, you, it's not for us, right? Church, the Lord's Day, Sunday, it's a whole different experience for us than it was for them. This was their whole culture. This was everybody and everybody shut it down, and everybody did nothing uh, during this day. It was this core component of what it meant to be Jewish. And if you weren't <laughs> practicing the Sabbath, then people judged you, right? right? We, we silently judge lots of people today for all kinds of things. We won't bring those out. But, but this, there was a lot of social pressure to observe the Sabbath, to not work. Uh, this is totally unique. There's no other culture in this world. There's no other uh, community that's doing this. And so they're falling behind on Sunday. But in reality, uh, they're getting ahead. Now, the word means to rest, to stop. And that's all that God had told them to do in the Old Testament. You go read it. We're not going to read all the passages today. But he told them, one day a week you are to stop, to cease, he didn't give them a whole lot of instruction of what that meant. He just told them, you need to rest. You need to shut it down once a week. It's a beautiful, simple concept in God's law. But by the time Jesus rolls around, this day had become incredibly burdensome, right? It had become heavy instead of light. It had become uh, religious instead of freeing, right? It had become hard work instead of rest. Uh, in the, there's Jewish rabbinic readings, uh, writings called the Talmud, and there's 24 chapters in the Talmud devoted to regulations and rules for all the different scenarios you might face on the Sabbath. 24 different chapters of a book devoted to how to stop, as if we need more instruction than that. <laughs> now, I this had become incredibly complex and difficult, not restful and life-giving. I just want to read one quote so you get a sense. This is from John MacArthur's commentary, and he says this. I think it's going to be on the screen. It's incredibly small, but, you know, we'll just, I'll read it. For example, traveling more than 3,000 feet from home was forbidden. How did they get to 3,000 feet? No idea. Totally made up. But it was forbidden. If one had placed food at the 3,000-foot point before the Sabbath, that point would then be considered a home, since there was food there, and then you could travel another 3,000 feet, right? So they figured out how to work this system. Similarly, you could put a piece of wood or rope across the end of a narrow street or alley, and that made it a doorway. So that became part of your home, so then your 3,000 feet of travel started from there, not from your actual doorway, right? I mean, I love this, right? Because I'm a rule follower to the T. I love tweaking the system to figure out how I can get the, right? But this is ridiculous. Jesus, God, I mean, God in the Old Testament, when he said one day a week you should rest, he is not envisioning drop points of food. He's not envisioning alleyways with little ropes across them and calling that a doorway, right? There's so many, you can go read, and we look at this as Christians, and I, maybe we shouldn't, but we laugh, and we go, that is absurd. 
But these are the kind of rules that these Pharisees are enforcing. That they're making sure that no one traveled more than 3,000 feet. No one didn't place their food drop point a certain distance. Right? This is ridiculous. Is this what God meant when he said, I want you to rest? No, this has become burdensome. That's legalism. Adding to, adding our own rules, our own thoughts, our own traditions, our own practices to God's revealed word. That's what legalism is. And saying, if you don't follow my rules, then you're not following God's word. So let's go back to the story. Jesus and his disciples. It's a Sabbath. I don't know how far they were from their home because Jesus didn't have a home. So maybe he was exempt from the 3,000 feet. I don't know. Uh, But on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. So what they did was not illegal, right? There were these generosity laws that allowed you to go and harvest from your neighbor's uh, land, right? Just a little bit for you to eat. That was totally in the bounds of God's revealed word. But the Pharisees looked at this and they said, because they plucked it, they harvested. That's work. Because they rubbed it between their hands, they grinded it. That's work. And because they ate it, they prepared food, and that was work. And all three of these things were against their made-up rules. So they asked him, why? Verse 2, why are you doing that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. The power that they had has gone to their head. And now listen, the the Pharisees are, are by all means very religious, good people, but they had created this whole system and all these laws and and boundaries and lines to keep them from sinning or keep them to, to follow God's law. And this power has gone to their heads. And they're watching Jesus' disciples and they're going, pluck, rub, eat. Oh, you're in violation of God's moral law. Their power has gone to their head. I can't imagine caring about that so much that I would be willing to confront someone. How dare you pluck a piece of grain? And so Jesus responds, and he responds better than I would have. Here's what he says. He gives an example from the Old Testament. This is from 1 Samuel uh, 21, if you want to go read the story. But let's read verse 3 and 4. And Jesus answered them, he, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he gave it to those with him. And so there's this story in the Old Testament where David, who has been anointed king but is, is running from Saul because Saul's trying to kill him, and he's running for his life, and he does not have food. And he and his men come, and they come to the temple, and they know that there would be bread there. And so they ask the high priest, can we eat? They are in dire need. <laughs> they are famished. They are starving. And the priest, the high priest who's in charge of this, he lets them have it, even though it wasn't lawful. And he deemed that this was, this was good. You guys need to eat more than this bread needs to sit on this table for the rest of the day. And the point Jesus makes by telling this story is that what God is concerned with is our compassion, not with our rule following. God, like in the Old Testament, he commends this high priest because he is compassionate and he is loving. He's not so concerned with making sure everybody follows all the rules. Jesus 
cares more about our mercy and our compassion and our love than he does about our tradition and our rule following and our religion, right? Taking care of one another is more important than following the rules. And so that's why Jesus tells this story. See, in Mark's account, when he tells this story, Jesus also says, the Sabbath was not made for man. I'm sorry, he says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The point of our existence is not to keep all these little rules. The point is that the Sabbath was given to us as a gift. One, of physical rest, but two, to point us to our eternal rest that we need in Christ. It wasn't meant to be this difficulty and this burden. It was meant to be freeing. Now, if our religious practice as Christians has become burdensome and difficult, then we may be erring on the side of legalism, right? Our religious practice as Christians is meant to be freeing and life-giving, not a bunch of rules, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, or God's not pleased with you, da-da-da-da-da. Jesus is pointing out, no, 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 no. That is not what I came to do is to put more burdens on you. I came to relieve them from you. I came to set you free, right? And he says in verse 5, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is Jesus' favorite term for himself, and I'm sure one of these sermons will get to where this comes from, but it's an Old Testament prophecy of who the Messiah would be. So he calls himself the Son of Man, and he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. By claiming to be Lord, he's claiming to be God. He's not claiming to just be kind of the master or the the, uh, top dog. He's claiming to be God. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, because the Sabbath was something God had put in place. So if he says, I'm Lord of that, he's claiming to be God. And so he's saying, I get to determine what is right and good, not you and your made-up rules. Jesus is claiming the authority to interpret this, because he's the one who wrote it. And he's claiming to be God. This is a huge statement. And I think this is why this infuriates the Pharisees. Not because he plucks some grain, but because he's claiming to be God. And in their mind, there's no way. Even though they've seen the miracles, even though they've seen him do all these amazing things, even though they've heard him interpret the, the, the Old Testament with accuracy and all this sort of stuff, they do not believe that he really is the Son of God. And it frustrates them. Now, before we go on to the next story, I want us to think just a little bit for a second about how this applies to our lives and how we are tempted at times to be legalists like the Pharisees. We're tempted to add our own rules and wisdom and practices and stuff to Scripture and say this is how everyone ought to be, right? Now, it's important that we, I want to give you a little bit of a framework to think about this. How do we think about these issues? There's three categories here. First is the category of clear biblical truth. There is very clear biblical truth. There are things that have been revealed that that we do not get to go, uh, I'm just going to write that off because that feels very rules-based. No. Like God has revealed himself as Trinity, as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We don't get to go around and go, well, I just don't think that applies to my life. 
God has revealed what is sinful and what is not sinful. We don't get to just say, no, but, but, but love is love, and we get to define it however we want to. No, there is clear biblical truth. And on this category, we have to judge one another, okay? If I stand up here today and say Jesus wasn't really the Son of God, he's just kind of an amazing man, you should judge me, and then you should fire me, okay? Because there is clear biblical truth that says that Jesus is the Son of God. Does that make sense? So this is, this is, the other examples are what is salvation? Who is God? What is sinful? There's so many others that fall into this first category. Let's talk about the second one. Less clear biblical truth. There's, there's, we believe God's word has given us all we need, but there's times that the, the Bible doesn't address a specific issue. Like, let's just think about how much YouTube should I watch, Right? It's not going to be in here. You're not going to find that today in some concordance. You might could find some principles that apply to that, but it's a little less clear. It's not as primary or as, you know, dominant, right? Now, on these kinds of issues, godly Christians at all times have had lots of different opinions. We could throw out uh, issues like wise food and drink consumption, practicing spiritual gifts, where should that be done? How should that be done? Should we practice the Sabbath as Christians? Uh, should we fast as Christians? What's your view on the end times? Those are just a few. And already you're going, well, I, I, my brother-in-law, you know, you're thinking about people that you disagree with already, right? That's okay. On this stuff in this second category that's less clear, we need to give room for opinions, we need to hold those loosely and only, only hold firmly onto that which is clearly revealed. But we should not allow these things to separate us like the Pharisees are separating themselves from them because they are not following my opinion. They're not following my little piece of wisdom, right? These are not meant to divide us, even though we will always have different opinions. And there's even a lower category that's just straight human opinion, straight, just general wisdom for life. We are going to have tons of different opinions and tons of different ideas, right? Like Shane and I were sitting at a dinner table this week, and I asked him something about Adam and Eve. I can't even remember what it was. And we debated back and forth, and at the end of it, he was wrong and I was right, but um, I can't even remember what it was, to be honest. Uh, but you know what? At the end of the day, we... We still sat and we had dinner and we were still friends, right? Because that's, it's okay. We're going to have differences of opinions, right? Some people get really elevate these at the third level to the top and say, this is the most important. Let's just, just gonna pick something. Like if you don't have a devotion time in the morning, then I'm not sure you're really a Christian. That, that's a bold statement. That might be true. It might be true for you that, that if you don't start your day reading God's word, then the rest of the day goes sour. But to put that on everybody when that's not necessarily prescribed in Scripture, you see what I'm saying? There's a lot of things that we can elevate from this, the, the minor stuff. We can put it at the top, like these Pharisees. They're saying, you can't, you can't grind wheat. How dare you, you evil whatever, right? We're going to have all kinds of different opinions okay but let's major I heard a pastor say this this week and I thought it was great major on the majors 
minor on the minor. Let's put most of our emphasis and most of our thought life and most of our faith on the very most important things. And the stuff that's less clear and even more murky down just on general human wisdom, let's, let's keep those as minor because they're not as important. If it was, God would have clearly revealed that we should all, you know, that Adam had a belly button in the garden, okay? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. And you may have an opinion on that. But is that really the most important thing? No, not at all. We'll ask him one day when we get there. We'll go, dude, show me your stomach. I just got to see it. If we elevate these minor things to the majors, then we have become legalists. We have become just practices, practice, I don't know what the word is. We're just being religious. We're just doing the motions. We're not really loving God, right? And what Jesus is trying to point out in this, that compassion and mercy and love is way more important than any human tradition. Let's keep going. Look at verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. So as Jesus did, this was his habit in these towns, is to go to the, Sabbath, to go to the synagogue, the place where the Jews would gather each week, just like we're gathering this morning. And they would gather, and there would be time of teaching. And Jesus often was asked to teach in these times. And so he's going to the people of God, the Israelites, because he is trying to get across to them that he is the Christ. He's there to save them. And he wants them to believe in him. And so he's there this day, and it says that there was a man whose right hand was withered. His arm had, who knows, from disease or injury or what, his arm had atrophied. His arm had stopped working. It's paralyzed. It's probably been that way for a long time, and everybody knows this man. And it says in verse 7, look, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. You see how they're painted? The scribes and Pharisees are lying in wait. They're, they're, it's like they're, they're tucked in the grass, just, just watching, right? They're, they're, just, they're just spies in the synagogue. They're not there to learn about God. They're not there to worship God. They're there to try to accuse somebody. And in fact, I think they expect Jesus to do something miraculous. So they have some level of belief that he can do something, right? They think he might heal, try to heal this man. And in their mind, that is wrong because it is the Sabbath and we do not work. And I don't know if that's in the Talmud or not. Healing somebody is work, but apparently in their mind, that was. They're trying to condemn Jesus to accuse him of doing something wrong because they're trying to discredit him. They're trying to point out that he is not the Christ. He is not the one you should be following. You should be following us. Now also notice, they did not try to stop him from doing this. It seems like if, if, I, love, if I love my neighbor enough and I see them doing something wrong, I'm going to try to stop them from doing something wrong, right? If, if, so, if someone I love is hurting themselves or whatever, like, what's the loving thing to do? Try to stop them. The Pharisees don't try to stop Jesus from healing, right? No, they are waiting for him to do it so they can accuse him. That's petty. That's evil. To watch someone do wrong so you can point it out. But it says Jesus knew their thoughts, verse 8. 
And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. Jesus knows what these guys are up to. He knows their innermost thoughts. He knows the judgment. He knows the attack that's coming. And so Jesus invites this man with the withered hand to the front. Jesus is up teaching. He brings him to the center of attention of the room because he knows what these guys are thinking. And he says in verse 9, he says, Is it law? I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Now, they don't answer. The room falls silent because they don't want to answer this question. If they know their Bibles, and I think they did, they knew the Old Testament, Isaiah 58 addresses the Sabbath multiple times. And you can go read it, but but basically, God is sick and tired of their practice. And he says this in Isaiah 58. I'm tired of your feast and your Sabbaths and your fasts and your religious observance. He says, what is good for you to do on the Sabbath but to, to love the foreigner, to do good to those around you, right? To be compassionate, to be merciful, I'm not concerned whether you walk 3,005 feet. I'm not concerned if you placed your drop point of food at the wrong point. I'm concerned whether you love your neighbor who has no food, right? And God had laid this out in the Old Testament multiple times. And so these religious leaders hear this. Is it better to do good or to harm, to save life or to destroy it? They know the answer. But the answer is not what they want to confess out loud. So they stay silent. So Jesus pulls this man to the front. Verse 10, it says, After looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Jesus just brings him to the front. We have no indication he touches him or whatever. Who knows? But he tells him to stretch out his hand. Probably something this man had never done in a, or had not done in a very long time. And this man, who everyone knew, had the withered arm, stretches it out, and it's healed. Right in front of everybody for everyone to see. He's got full mobility. He's got full function. And he is healed right in the center of where everybody's looking, including these Pharisees. Listen, if that happened today... I don't know what I'd do. I would believe, right? Because I saw it with my own eyes. And these Pharisees, what does it say? Look at verse 11. But they were filled with, not belief, not amazement, not joy for this man who got his arm restored. It says they were filled with what? Fury, rage, anger. And they discussed with one another what they might do. To Jesus. Irrationally, they are mad that a crippled man, that a man with a withered arm has been healed. Can you imagine being so petty that you are mad that someone is healed? That someone got help? That someone's life was fixed and restored? Imagine being so caught up in your religion and your, your, your rules and your practices and your, your observance of God's law, which is just your wisdom. Imagine being so caught up in that that you can't see that this is good. This is beautiful. This is right. This is the epitome of a hard heart. This is the epitome of blind eyes. 
This is the epitome of closed ears. No matter what they see, no matter what they hear, no matter what they experience, they will not believe. And so it says that they discuss what they might do to Jesus. The word is plot. They begin to plot how they might deal with this new Jesus problem that they have. And we know how this ends. Eventually their plot succeeds, right? Eventually they get so angry at Jesus' good works and his right teaching and his clear revelation of God that they conspire to execute him and to kill him on a cross. And the point is this, the point from last week, the point this week, no matter what Jesus does, he can't please the religious. Jesus can't, no matter what he does, good, bad, whatever. But the other side of that coin is that being religious will never please Jesus. Our good works, our coming to church, our giving, by all means, keep doing that, right? Because we want to fellowship with these people. But none of that will ever earn you favor with God. None of that will forgive you. None of your goodness will ever forgive the evil and the sin that we each have. The only one who could do that is Jesus. And that's what we're going to celebrate that here in a minute by taking the the bread as as a picture of his body that was broken for us and taking the cup which is a picture of his blood that was spilled for us and we're going to remember that that we tried to work and earn our way to God but ultimately it was God that had to give us rest in Jesus right I love the picture here too though because not all of these Pharisees had a hard heart forever at the execution at, uh, in the early church, there's many examples of Pharisees who become believers in Christ. People who were religious and, and good at the religiosity and the traditions and the rules, and their hearts are changed. There is no one too far gone that, that, that their heart cannot be overcome by grace. There's no one too religious that God can't save, and there's no one too bad that God can't save. I've been reading this book uh, called Spurgeon and the Poor, and it's about the um, preacher in the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon. He was a a pastor preacher in London, which was the largest city in the world at the time, and he came as a 20-year-old man to be a pastor, 20-something, and he took over this church called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It just had, I don't know, 100 people or less, little, just a small church, normal-sized church in London. And God blessed Spurgeon's ministry immensely, and that church became thousands and thousands of people. But in this book, it's talking about Spurgeon's church and their heart for the poor. Their church had 66 different ministries related to uh, the least of these, to the poor. They had different mercy ministries and widows and, and all sorts of things. 66 different things that went on all throughout London, and they transformed formed their community. Why? Because their faith wasn't just about what we do in this room, but, but it overflowed into this love for others. And I was reading it again in a commentary this week, 
about this by R. Kent Hughes and about this passage. And he says, religious observance that does not look out for the plight of the needy is unacceptable. Mercy is a sure sign of knowing God and living a life that pleases him. And as I think about this text, we are meant to be moved with compassion for others. As Christians, our heart is not moved to be more religious, to be more, um, uh, I don't know, get better at keeping the rules, more put together, more perfect. No, when we experience grace, it's meant to overflow with those who are broken, those who are poor. It's, it, it fills us up with compassion. That we begin to love like Jesus loved, we serve like Jesus served, and we go after the outsider because that's what Luke is about. It's about the good news for everybody. The withered arm, the paralytic, the leper, all those who are on the outside, that's who Jesus is going for. And that's what we should be about too. Right? Let me pray, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that it speaks to us uh, in so many ways. God, I pray that we would not be um, religious better than these, God. We would not be those who are so caught up in our own goodness and rule-keeping that we neglect the poor and the needy and the broken and the, the those that need mercy around us. God, I pray that... God, we would be moved with compassion, just like Jesus was moved with compassion. God, we thank you for your forgiveness that you've poured out for us, God. And may it move us to forgive others, to move towards people, um, to reach those who are on the outside. So we love you. We thank you for your word today. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.